Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. This is the second part of an interview with Jonathan Douglas when he visited Hong Kong prior to the COVID pandemic. Jonathan Douglas worked for decades for Radio 4, RTHK's English language classical music channel and plays piano himself. Last week, he talked about first coming to Hong Kong from Singapore in the early 1980s and deciding to stay. In 2017, he returned to London and decided to do a master's in acting, a lifelong passion of his. Later in the programme, Jonathan talks to me about some of the interviews he had with conductors and musicians while working for Radio 4, and some who could be a bit tricky at times. I uh, applied for drama school. Acting has always been something I've been very passionate about. There's been a great interest throughout my life, but I really couldn't claim to to have done it at anything beyond a, a, an amateur level, I suppose, beginning from university and then doing a lot of theatre in Hong Kong. So uh, there came this opportune point in my life where I decided to uh, to start actually applying to London drama schools to do a, a one-year master's. These courses tend to be very, very intense uh, and very, very tough, actually much more so than, I, than I'd realised when I when I made the application. <laughs> and and then I went through this whole rigmarole of, of uh, auditions uh, about which I knew absolutely nothing. So the first audition, which was at the Royal, Royal Central, which is one of London's more traditional drama schools, was a disaster. Then I, did a, I went to Mountview Academy of Theatre, and it went really very, very well, uh, and they offered me a place. I, actually, I got a taste of how rigorous things were at that audition because it lasted all day an audition lasted all day from nine in the morning till about six and you were monitored and watched doing all sorts of, of things uh, with an emphasis on on movement so i mean i was thinking my this is getting right out of my comfort zone but anyway i i had to do the the two monologues which is what you normally have to do a shakespeare and a modern monologue and i was asked to remain and then do it again in front of a more important panel of people including the course director and then had a, a big interview and then I got a call two or three days later saying that I'd been offered a place which I hadn't really bargained for I, I thought that the chances of my getting a place in one of these schools was was remote because it's it's very very competitive so what was your Shakespeare monologue Ah, oh, that's an interesting question yeah I, I did um, one of Mark Antony's speeches from Julius Caesar when he is addressing the crowd and succeeding in shifting their allegiance. So it's, it's an extraordinary exercise in persuasion. You, and you, you know the, the famous first speech, lend me your ears, friends, Roman countrymen, lend me your ears. I didn't do that one. It, it, he does it in sections, and I, I, I did one of the later sections of that great episode in Julius Caesar. So then I was thinking, my goodness, I really am going to go to London and, and go spend a year at drama school. And then um, just as I began, actually it began on September the 1st, this, this course, and on the very very first day when I was terrified anyway because obviously I'm a lot older than everybody else I mean every the other they're up mega kind of fit motivated and talented young actors that probably average age about mid-twenties you know obviously I'm a lot older so I was terrified and then on that very very first day I discovered I had prostate cancer which was an added nuisance really the course itself was by far the toughest thing I've ever done in my life in my life I have to say it was, you know, this question of sort of leaving the flat at 6.30 and then coming back at about 9 in the evening and then you had to do homework and you had to learn your scripts and read your check-off plays and things like that. And the, during the day, it was, it was relentless. Classes usually began at 9 and if you were a second late, you, you were kicked out 
and it was like a black mark on your record. I mean, you know, it was very strict. You weren't waft, you know, it wasn't like what you might think it was going to be like. And everyone was very, very committed and driven. So uh, it was, wow, I, it was a shock to the system, actually. We were told, you're going to hit the ground running. Don't think this is going to be easy. And we're going to drag you kicking and screaming out of your head and into your bodies. So, you know, it, it was not for the faint-hearted, this course. But are you glad you did it? Yeah, well, I nearly gave up. Um, on a few occasions, I nearly quit. But you were having to look after your health at the same time. Yes, yes. So I was, I was having to organise... You know, I had to tell the course director I had this health problem, and, and she was she was very, very um, supportive. And I was having, I was having to organise hospital appointments. And my, my school said, look, if it gets too tough, then you can, we'll, we'll let you start again the following year. But I didn't want to go through that whole... The first two months was, was the toughest in terms of trying to deal with that social dynamic of mixing with, and, and dealing with a social environment where I'm old enough to be with their dad, their father. Very, very challenging. So I didn't want to do that again. So I was determined to carry on doing this. It, people say, Did you, but you enjoyed it. And I don't think that's the right word. Okay. Yeah, you know, I'm, but the right word is probably I found it rewarding. <laughs> you endured it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. And and that was very, very, very rewarding. And, and that the bond, of course, that you make with all your fellow classmates is very, very strong, even though these are people of 25. Oh, sure. And actually, it's, it's actually uniquely rewarding for a, an older person to, to go through something like that with, with people who are a generation younger. And now what happens? You know, you've, you've got your pad in London, you, you, you've got an agent, so you're looking for theatre or screen? Well, this course, one of the reasons it's so tough is because it does try to cover everything, including screen and, and stage. The objective of this course is to make it industry ready, that's what they say. My experience has been mainly on stage. Yeah, tell me about some of the productions you've done in Hong Kong over the years. I immediately got, got involved in the local theatre scene when I came to Hong Kong, which was back in the 80s. Oh, gosh, there was, there was productions of Murder in the Cathedral by T.S. Eliot. I remember that where we did that in the St. John's Cathedral. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, how did you stage that? Oh, heavens above, that was such a long time ago, <laughs> I can't really remember. <laughs> Obviously, we were running around the aisles, I suppose. The main thing was I befriended a guy from Hong Kong University whose name is Piers Gray, and he happened to be the younger brother of a very distinguished playwright called Simon Gray. People who know about modern British theatre would know Simon Gray very much, very much in the same breath as somebody Harold Pinter. Pinter and, and Simon Gray were great friends. And what's more, Simon, Simon Gray was my tutor at university, so it's, it's just ridiculous, this kind of connection. So I happened to bump into his younger brother here in Hong Kong. He was a teacher at Hong Kong University. And he perhaps to some extent felt feeling that he was overshadowed by his successful older brother because he also had ambitions to write plays. And he got me to be in, in the plays that he'd written here in Hong Kong. So I did a lot of Piers Gray's plays in Hong Kong, including a one-man show about a First World War poet called Ivor Gurney, which I also, also did at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Tell me about when you're on stage, how does it make you feel? In life, for want of a better word, I keep, I would say, rather low profile. In fact, I would say I'm probably more introverted than extrovert. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm more of an introvert, I would say, which was, which was again, quite a challenging thing for me to deal with at, at a drama school. I'm, most of my fellow students are probably more extrovert 
to be honest. I'm, I'm a fairly quiet, introverted person, I would say, in life. But once I get onto stage, I feel in a, in a way, I, well, I suppose, come alive. I'm not sure if that's the right phrase. Definitely, um, people who see me, who know me, and then see me do things on stage find it surprising. Um, they think, my goodness, this is a, a very different kind of Jonathan to the one that they know in, in real life. Whether it's emceeing, I mean, I think that's, that's I get that's also, if, like I did lots of emceeing for Radio 4. When I'm out there in front of an audience, and, you know, there may be also TV cameras as well, which you've got to be mindful of. I, I've, I, I find it incredibly demanding and challenging and, and stressful, but I, I kind of feel that's where I belong. And when, when I'm acting in a, like a, whether it's whether it's one man show or, or doing Shakespeare, uh, when I'm when I'm on stage, it's transformative. It makes me feel alive in a in a very intense way, and a very rewarding way. And that's and I kind of feel that's where I belong. And I've kind of always felt that ever I discovered that that's what happened when I went on stage from when I was like eighteen, nineteen, I suppose. Other interviews that spring to mind, there was Marcel Marceau, uh, obviously the great French mime artist. So was that all done silently? <laughs> I know. Well, this is a, this is a, this is a, such a funny <laughs> irony. Of course, he inevitably he is the most articulate and f and charming person to talk to you can imagine, and such a, a fascinating life story. He was a member of the French Resistance during the Second World War, for example. And I'll never forget uh, the, how he we rounded off the interview. He said, uh, "And and the rest, as Shakespeare said." is silence. <laughs> so Jean-Pierre Rompal, great French flautist. Jean-Pierre Rompal I, I, I talked to twice and, and again his, his incredibly urbane French accent and, and I remember listening to him thinking oh it's so interesting the way he puts the emphasis on the second syllable. <laughs> he said when Mossad was 20 <laughs> incredible achievement. And he was a, a flautist? He's the greatest ever flautist, I, I suppose. I think most people would agree with that. He's a big man as well, so it's a bit strange, you know, in a way, this big man to play this instrument. <laughs> Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist, I, I did speak to. I always wanted to speak to... I, I really wanted to, to do an interview with David Bowie. Yeah, I think David Bowie would have been the most fascinating person to, to interview. I don't know if you've ever seen him do interviews, but he is the most charming and, and fascinating person. I did try to interview Mick Jagger, but he apparently doesn't do interviews. He, like, he's a bit like the Queen, he makes statements. <laughs> I didn't. I interviewed Sting, so I don't just interview classical musicians, I'm happy to interview anybody, and certainly jazz musicians. What was Sting like? He was basically fine. Once he, once he got sort of warmed up and he was relaxed with you, he was perfectly fine. This, this I have to say, this was telephone interview I didn't I didn't interview Sting face to face but uh, I, I, I I remember he was a tiny bit unsure what to make of me I, I, I got the impression at the beginning he wanted to make make sure he was trying to sort of slightly suss me out but once he once he was uh, relaxed and once we got things going then um, I, I, I often find that I often find that at the beginning of interviews particularly with slightly slightly tricky customers there's a story, I've got, I've got two stories that suddenly popped into my head, actually. One of them was with Valery Gergiev, who is this, uh, this celebrated Russian conductor who was the music director of the, the St. Petersburg and also the London Symphony Orchestra, and, and who is personally 
friend with of, of Putin, President Putin. They're very close. I've, I've interviewed Valery Gergiev twice. And one interview, he got very difficult indeed. He started getting at me. I, I think I asked him a question which he misunderstood. I asked him how his sound, his, the sound of the Marinsky Orchestra, which he had taken over at a certain point, how it, he was trying to make it different, more distinctive compared to his predecessor, or something like that. How did he want to put his personal stamp on this orchestra? He seemed to think I was questioning whether or not things had got better at all, or something like that. So he suddenly started attacking me in a, uh, a way that I found a bit startling. I was, wasn't expecting it. He said, how do I know that the person I'm talking to knows anything about my work? <laughs> how do I know that the person I'm talking to is even intelligent? You know, he started, he started saying things like that. <laughs> and I, I, and I, is this live or recorded? Oh, this is recorded. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I let him go on. And then I thought, now, the way to handle this is definitely what you must not do is be sucked in. You must not answer questions like that head on. You learn that even if you've got small children. <laughs> so I, he stopped and then he gave it two seconds then ask him a very specific question about something very specific and very different to what he's been going on about. And it just so happened that he was in Hong Kong with, uh, I think it was one of Tchaikovsky's operas, Queen of Spades. So I said, um, now you're here in Hong Kong with Tchaikovsky's Queen of Spades. Um, I know that you did this production 15 years ago with the Bolshoi. And I wondered to what extent you have your previous production in mind as, as you approach it anew, and, and to what extent is it, you know, a, re, a kind of rediscovery? And he had to do a, a, a double take. It's quite interesting. I was I was not going to be drawn on all his aggression, and I had asked him a, a perfectly okay question. And uh, in in the end, he more or less had to refocus on the question I'd asked him, and talk about Tchaikovsky's opera. So um, that for me was quite in, quite interesting experience in terms of the technique you need when you come across difficult people in, in interview situations. It's to not engage. It's extremely important not to allow yourself not to allow yourself to be engaged. Yes, uh, on that on those kind of terms, and not not to allow yourself to be um, sucked in, drawn in. And and the, it's not easy. I, I've I've seen it in other people, and I can see that there is a temptation. To, to answer these kind of things head on, but that's precisely what you must not do. When, you, when you've got these famous conductors or artists of all different, uh, you know, very used to being fated, um, mm. having the best hotels, I would imagine that there are uh, temperamental aspects, stress, um, and also jet lag uh, and egos to deal with. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you get people who you just don't know how they're going to be. I've, I've interviewed Vladimir Ashkenazi many, many, many times. Vladimir Ashkenazi, one of the greatest pianists of his generation, un undoubtedly. He, he now, sadly, plays the piano very rarely, um, but he's, he's concentrating on conducting. I think people who remember him as a pianist are, are sad that he's, he's not doing more piano playing and less conducting. But anyway, he's, he's a, uh, one of the great artists of his generation. And he, he's, he was brought up in Soviet Russia and he went through the whole thing of living in exile and then going back to Russia and being fated as a, as a national hero, actually. So, so anyway, I, I regard him as, I don't want to say as a friend because I don't suppose he remembers me, but we've had some wonderful interviews. But he can be 
uh, including an interview on television, which which went marvelously well. Actually, I've got a I've got a story I'd like to say about this, but, but Vladimir Ashkenazi it can be quite temperamental, and especially after a long flight, because he is, you know, you get you get the hang if you do if you interview somebody more than once, you get to know which people do suffer more from jet lag than others. He, you've got to be a bit careful with him early in the morning after he's come uh, been on a long flight, and uh, I had a bad interview because he can give you a hard time. Ashkenazi can give you a hard time. If if he's not feeling in in good form, uh, and he he did on one occasion, uh, and it was a very difficult interview. But there was one interview, uh, and this was a television interview, and this is actually this is a very nice, pleasant experience with Ashkenazi. He was going to conduct the Sydney Orchestra, of which he was he was the uh, artistic director at that time, and our own Hong Kong's own Rachel Chang, a lovely, lovely young, wonderful pianist, was going to play Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto Number no. Two, a concerto that Ashkenazi has recorded very, very famously at least two or if not three times. And so anyway, I went to meet him in the, in the room, this room at the Peninsula Hotel. Uh, there, were, there was a film crew, camera crew, because this is going to be a filmed TV interview. And then they said, right, now could you just sit down here on the sofa? And we've got the lighting and the camera angles, right? And then everyone was getting very nervous, waiting for the maestro to, to show up. And then suddenly, very quickly, because Vladimir Ashkenazi, he's a, he's a very small man and he moves very quickly. <laughs> so suddenly, this, this kind of small figure walking very, very fast and everyone's, you know, taken aback. And he comes and he sits down and he looks at me and the first thing he said to me was, how do I look? <laughs> and I said, oh, you, you look fine. And he said, no, no, really, really. My wife is very, very, very particular. Um, and I said, oh, well, <laughs> well, do you have a comb? <laughs> do you have a comb, maestro? And he said, yes! And, and so he looks at his jacket. <laughs> and I said, I, and he sort of went like that. And I said, and I said yeah, that's and he said, that better? Yes, yes, that's better. And, and then so he, he was feeling fine about that. And then we did this interview on camera. Doing interviews on camera is is that much you've probably done it yourself, but it's it's that much more stressful than than doing it on air. And you know it's that much more important not to not to fluff up and and you know it has to be smooth. So it, you you know you've got to really have your wits about you. But it it when and and Ashkenazi is an awkward customer in interviews. Sometimes he just gives very brief answers if he, that's all he wants to say. So you've got to really be on your toes in this kind of situation but this interview went like a dream it went really really well and at the end of it he said congratulations no really really okay he kept on saying really i thought i do maybe 100 100 150 interviews they asked me stupid questions um but oh, this was you you've done your homework you know? and i said well thank you no really really <laughs> Maybe this was well, like one in a hundred interviews. Very, very good. Really, so, so funny. <laughs> so that was one a memorable moment with Ashkenazi. And was that on RTHK TV or? Yeah, it was. Must have been on on RTHK TV. Another potentially awkward customer is is James Galway, Sir James Galway. If you forget to call him Sir James, he gets very unhappy indeed. Don't forget to call James Galway Sir James. Oh. <laughs> Take that a special hint. Should I ever bump into him? Yeah.
It's like you must never call Philip Glass. You know Philip Glass, an American composer, contemporary composer, very famous, a New York-based American composer. You must never call him a minimalist composer, although he, everyone thinks of him as a minimalist composer. That's how he's kind of classified. He gets very unhappy. And if you come across Dame Evelyn Glennie, who's a, a great, great Scottish-born Glaswegian, actually, she's one, one of the world's greatest percussionists, very, very internationally celebrated. And what is extraordinary about her is that she's deaf. But don't mention it. Dame Evelyn Glennie does not like you to mention her deafness because uh, she has very strong feelings about this not being an interesting or, or special thing to talk about. There are certain things about certain certain artists that you learn you must you must try to avoid. So there's some examples. There are a number of tremendously gifted Hong Kong pianists, you know Mary Wu, Nancy Liu, and and a, a whole host of others. And, and whenever any of these people do do recitals uh, or do chamber music, and they often do chamber music, then then I would be only too delighted to talk to them. Rachel, Rachel Chang, I've, spoke, I've done interviews with Rachel herself um, many, many times, and I'm always really delighted to talk to these people. They are so committed, and, and on the whole, they're so wonderfully articulate as well, and just a joy to have on the programme. Jonathan Douglas there, who continues his love of music and acting in the UK and his personal battle with prostate cancer, and I wish him all the very best with that. To finish off the programme, here's Jonathan playing piano at a recent gig with his two musician sons. It's his son Cameron Douglas singing here in a rip-roaring rendition of Pencil Full of Lead. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <coughs> Thank you.